It is encouraging to hear you all sing. Praise God. Uh, those headed to Sunday school, feel free to head out behind you there. Follow Mr. Travis and crew. The rest of us go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. And as you're turning there, if you can't find a Bible, there should be one. A couple here and there scattered around the chairs. Definitely look around, grab one so you can follow along with us. Romans 6, kind of towards the end of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And as you're turning there, uh, welcome to all of you. So good to see you. Grateful to have you all gathering for worship together this morning. Uh, really, as we continue uh, in our time of worship, studying the Word of God and seeing what God has to say from His Word, as we push pause on life and the noise of the world, we have 168 hours in a week. It's good to take one of them, at least, to feast on the Word of God with all the ups and downs of life. Romans chapter 6, we... Uh, if you're newer, we, we do hear what's called expository preaching, which is to say we, we go verse by verse through whole books of the Bible, start at the beginning, just go through, uh, let God decide what text is next, and then we try to bring it out. Ex- exposition or expository preaching means just bringing out what it says uh, in, in an attempt to let God's word speak for himself. Romans chapter 6, we're in verse 20 to 22. Title of the message is The Old and New Life compared for our care god has uh, given us his 66 the 66 books of the bible and there's that memorable phrase jesus gives in matthew chapter 4 that humanity we can't live by bread alone we're body and soul and food for the soul is the word of god About four decades ago, uh, there was a major controversy that erupted in in the American Christian community, among American Christianity, and it was a huge one, a consuming one, and it was called the Lordship Salvation Controversy, the Lordship Salvation Controversy. The issue boiled down to this, and it's, it's a significant one. Can a person be truly saved, a believer, a Christian, going to heaven, regenerate, who believes on Christ as Savior, but doesn't come under him as Lord, who believes that he's the Savior, but the Lord stuff, not really. Can someone be saved who who believes, who takes that approach, Jesus as their Savior, but as far, uh, as far as turning from sin and coming to him as Lord, that's, that's not for me. Which is to say, is it possible for someone to be saved, to regenerate, regenerate, excuse me, and not sanctified and not experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit's change? Those who answered, yes, this is a consuming controversy. You can look it up. Lots of books were written about it. Those who answered yes to those questions held that a person can be saved simply like believe the facts about Jesus, believe that it's true about eternal life, but there doesn't need to be any turning from sin, no resulting, there doesn't need to be an accompanying change in life. 
There, needs, there doesn't need to be any commitment, not even any willingness to yield to Christ as Lord. That was the position largely of, at the time and probably almost today, uh, the most well-known Christian seminary in the United States, uh, which supplies the most amount of pastors in the country. Again, lots of books back and forth. Uh, The book that supported that position was a book called Absolutely Free by a, a gentleman named Zane Hodges. And one book, not the only one, that took the other position was The Gospel According to Jesus by Dr. John MacArthur, considered his magnum opus. So the controversy, though, is still very much around today. And and again, it comes down to this. What's the difference between what God says is salvation and not salvation, a believer and not a believer, and a, a Christian and someone who is not, as God says in his word? What's the difference between a regenerate person or an unregenerate person? And remember, regenerate is a, it's a, it's a term that theologians have used for centuries. I think it's more helpful than saying things like a believer um, or something like that because it, it comes from Scripture, from John chapter 3, verse 3 to 8, Titus 3, 5, and is more of an objective term, and it helps differentiate from what's become very popular in our day and age, partly at the consequence that there's not a lot of persecution for being a Christian, at least like physical persecution in these days. Um, the, the idea of a sociological or a cultural Christian, someone who sort of externally, politically, culturally associates with outward Christian things, but has not actually experienced the miracle of salvation, a.k.a. Regeneration. So regeneration is a more theologically and biblically precise term to describe what happens when someone becomes a believer in Christ. It just comes from that term, the new birth that Jesus uses in John 3 to describe the miracle of the Holy Spirit indwelling the heart of the previously unsaved person such that their eyes are open to God, their heart changes. Regeneration. So both sides of the controversy agreed that to go to heaven, to be forgiven, is purely by faith alone and not works. That to receive the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future, the abounding grace of God, such that as we sing, there is no condemnation. Both sides understand that is a free gift that is received not by, you know, progressive moral exertion, but simply by childlike faith in Jesus Christ. A.K.A. that justification, as we've been studying in Romans 3 to 5, probably one of the most important terms in the Christian faith, justification is by faith alone, through Christ alone. But the debate is, so both sides agree on that, the debate is, what's going to happen in the life of someone who has received salvation. What, what is the resulting change? Is it true, as some surveys say, that like 40 to 35% of the American population is saved, are believers? Is that true, as many, many uh, surveys, even of recent times, have shown us? Now, why, why should anyone care about this? Turn backwards to Matthew chapter 7 real quick, if you would. 
the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Just look there really quick with me. Who cares about this? Is this just some dumb, worthless debate of religious people just kind of going back and forth on minor and consequential things? Is that what this is about, just sort of peripheral issues? Well, what does Matthew 7 look there? Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus here is preaching a sermon to very, a very religious and outwardly conservative culture in this particular context. People externally who are super religious, but not many of them confused about conversion. And he says in verse 21, look there. I mean, he drops a bomb here. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. So right there he's saying, not everyone who names me is headed to heaven, is saved. So right there, that's kind of a a woe passage. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Is Jesus saying you have to do the will of his Father, in other words, do works to earn righteousness? Of course not. That would contradict everything the Bible teaches about forgiveness. He's saying the evidence, not the earning. And then he says, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy? Like we, we preached, we, 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 we spoke of you in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Back to Romans 6. So that's, a, that's kind of a sobering thing. And that gives, gives us reason why we should care about this issue. In other words, what is the nature of saving faith and what is not? It's, we, ought to, we ought to care about this for this reason. It's like a sick person who gets a first opinion from a physician. They go to the physician and the physician said, oh, it's, it's, it's just a little virus, you'll get over it. And then after a certain amount of time, they're still feeling sick again, and they kind of go up and down, and, and they think, I better look a little bit more deeper into this. So they go for a second opinion. The physician does quite a bit more scans, quite a bit more tests, quite a bit more thinking, a little more carefulness and thought brought, brought into it. And the physician says, whoa, this is not a virus. You have a life-threatening condition. It's curable, but you need to act now. How loving and relieving that would be. And so it is with this issue. God gives us this passage and he is loving as the infallible great physician to say, look, I love you. And there is deception in the world. Jesus just showed us that. Here's what it means. Here's what saving faith is and is not. Now, essential to any controversy It's critical, and this is kind of a lost art in our modern day, that we base our understanding and our belief not upon sentiment, you know, like what our best friend or grandma always told us, or opinion, or feelings, but on the immovable, objective standard of the Word of God, not our own thoughts or opinions, because God is God and we are not. And so this passage is a helpful Helpful clarification to that long debate, the lordship controversy. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 14 of Romans 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. 
God's inerrant word says, for sin shall not be master over you, speaking to believers, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then having from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit, leading to sanctification and the end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reading of the Word of God. So Romans is given to the human race as a great gift of God to give us the greatest news you could ever possibly hear in your life, the gospel. You will never hear better news than this, the gospel, the good news that God has sent his son into the world. God moved by his gentle and tender mercies. God not being provoked by the sin of the world, God not being, not throwing in the towel on the human race, despite how we as a race collectively have often told God, no, thank you. You tell me to go left, I'll go right. You tell me to go right, I'm going to go left. That God moved in his tenderness by his compassion. I said, I'm going to come down and, and I'm going to die for your sins. Because he's a great God. And he's a saving God. And whatever you think about God, to think rightly about God, you need to think that he is a gracious, saving God. As a father has compassion on his children, the psalmist writes, so the Lord has compassion on, those, on us and those who fear him. And the only way a person can be forgiven is through justice. Every person has a sense of justice. We've violated God's commands, all of us, whether in thought, word, nature, and deed, all of the above. All of us. No other gods above me. Don't take my name in vain. Don't hold things higher than me. Honor me. Honor your parents. Don't lie. Sexual purity. Don't steal. Don't covet. Always be thankful. And other things. We've all crossed those lines. Even in our thoughts, Jesus clarifies in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22 to 48. He says it has to be Perfect in thought, word, and deed. And then Jesus comes out of heaven and says, I will do the work so that you can be forgiven and be spared the wrath and the penalty you deserve for that. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Romans really crescendos and culminates as we saw in chapter 5, verse 20. Just look back there for a second. Romans 5.20, 
The law came in, that's God's commandments, so that transgression would increase. In other words, the commandments, the standards show us, whoa, we're not as great as we think we are. We've sinned. But contrast, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And that's a verse that we need to have in our minds. As much as, as piled high as our sin is, because Christ is an infinite Savior and was the perfect God-man, his death piles higher than our sin for those who would simply put faith in him. For those who would feel condemned by Satan, condemned in their sin, the God of the Bible, the only God, wants you to be sure his grace abounds all the more. And so the question is, what happens when a person receives that grace? Can a sinner receive the grace of God and have that grace be inert? Have that grace leave us unchanged? You saw in verse 15 of chapter 6, Paul saying, so what now? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Again, if you've been with us, you understand he says that because people were accusing him, that gospel, the superabounding grace, people were saying, if you tell people that, they will just abuse grace and continue to live unchanged lives. Someone who is saved, who is regenerate, will say, oh, that is convenient that I can just be forgiven. I can just go live however I want now. Sin's not a big deal. I can just do whatever. Paul says, may it never be. And so Romans 6 then is telling us, when you believe savingly on Christ, you're changed. And he uses two metaphors in chapter 6. The first half of chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, he uses the metaphor of, of you, you've died. When you put faith in Jesus, you died at your old ways. They don't have the smell, the desire, the allure that they once have. And then in verse 15 to verse 23, he says, you're under a new master, a new Lord. New life, new Lord. So from verse 20 to 22, we'll see two reasons, big picture, and there's a lot of detail under that. This is Paul's really taking us into the control room of, of like what Christianity is about. Lots of technicalities and details. It's meaty good stuff. I'll do my best to explain it accurately. Two reasons why believers must offer their lives as pleasing to God. From verse 20 to 22, two reasons why believers must offer their lives as pleasing to God. Verse 19 is kind of a, a, a leading up to that. He says, I'm speaking in human terms. Look there at verse 19. Because of the weakness of your flesh, we saw last week, that just means when he says I'm speaking in human terms, he just means I'm giving you some illustrations because this is like kind of technical stuff that can be a little hard to understand. It's been hard for me as I've been studying this for the last few months. And then he says, verse 19, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. That, that Greek there, that, the, the Greek word, remember the New Testament was given by the Holy Spirit in Koine Greek of the Mediterranean world. Uh, that Greek word translated present, the command there, present yourselves, it means to offer something in service to another. 
And then the word members, present your members, that's, a, that's like a junk drawer term that includes all the faculties of a human being, like your thoughts, your motivation, your meditations, your desires, your heart, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands, your feet, everything, your time. He's saying present it all, not in service to sin any longer or to Satan, to the kingdom of darkness. That's the old master. Jesus has conquered him, just as it said he would in Genesis 3.15. But present them now to God. Everything. And this, by the way, in verse 19, this rules out the idea of compartmentalized spirituality, doesn't it? It it just kind of rules out and prohibits compartmentalized Christianity. The idea that, well, Tuesdays and Sundays I'll give to God and my feet, but the other days, my thoughts, what I think, what I, what I believe about people and these kind of things, I'm not going to give that to God nor the other days. Kind of rules it out because he says, present your members, all of them. And then, he, and then he gets into verse 20, four, verse 20 begins, four, when you were, and so this verse 20 to 22 is connected to verse 19. He's saying, let me just give you a, a few more reasons why you need to present yourselves no longer as slaves to sin if you've believed in Christ. Emphasizing why, why? Christianity always has understanding behind it. There's no such thing as blind faith. That's a pagan myth. There is always good, redemptive reason behind why everything God's, what what he says to do. Here we go. Reason number one, simply because the carnage of life before salvation. The carnage of life before salvation. Verse 20 and 21. The first reason why he wants us to present our entire life in service to God is because the carnage of life before salvation. And this is a, this text, verse 20 to 21, is like a biography of every single person before Christ. It's a biography of my life, generally speaking, prior to Christ, of, your, of yours prior to Christ. And it's pretty dark. It's pretty sobering. God's not really in the business of flattery. Um, he loves us too much for that, doesn't he? And he doesn't sugarcoat things. He's in the business of truth and love. And he loves us enough in verse 20 to 21 to say, look, here, this is to be motivation, if you're not saved yet, to get saved. And if you are, to, to present yourselves to God, not compartmentalize. Because the, the life prior to Christ is a carnage, spiritual carnage. Even if you were a Fortune 50 CEO, athletic star, whatever. And there's several things he gets into because Paul wants us to just kind of slowly go through and says, I, I just want you to pause and understand the carnage of life before you are saved and by faith in Jesus Christ. First, there'll be a couple 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 points under here. He wants us to see several characteristics of the carnage of life before Christ. Number one, slaves of sin. Slaves of sin. He's been hitting on this over and over. He wants us to be sure of this before we move on. Look at verse 20. For when you were, speaking of Christians, when you were slaves of sin. It's the eighth time this word slave has been used in this passage. To emphasize the carnage of life outside of Christ. He's speaking 
of this, this bondage. I want us to remember, before you're saved, you were a slave to sin. Jesus said, all who sin and commit sin are slaves to sin. And by the way, this should give Christians a compassion, a humility on those who are yet outside of Christ. They're enslaved to sin. And were it not for the grace of God grabbing us and de-chaining and de-dungeoning us, we'd be there too. This isn't, God didn't break a believer from the slavery to sin because he's so great. All we have to do to be a slave to sin's reign is nothing. Exist. So beloved, everyone who has refused Christ or is outside of Christ, they're slaves of sin. Again, and the, the, the illustrations from parenting are just so vivid and confirming of this, right? No child ever needs a parent to train them to lie to their parents, to say no to their parents, to deceive their parents, to complain. They do it naturally because everyone's born a slave of sin. And this is just isn't speaking of like externally rank, unashamed, immoral people. This is your, your neighbor who's an outwardly moral person, but hasn't believed on Jesus Christ yet. Or your friend who professes another religion and is yet to receive Christ. They're slaves of sin too. It's obvious how an unashamed, externally immoral person is, but how is that person? Again, think back to the commandments. What, what we were prior to Christ and what they are. They're a liar. There's times where they're dishonest. They're, uh, they're covetous. There's times where they're unthankful and they complain. They're a thief. They rob God of glory in life. They don't give him the glory that he deserves. Your outwardly moral neighbor and friend who's not yet saved or a Romanist, your Roman Catholic friend that believes that salvation is by works, it's what Rome teaches. They've had a high view of themselves and were proud, sinfully proud, which is idolatry. They're an idolater. This is slavery to sin. This is what we once were, and no one can serve two masters. It's one or the other. Second aspect of life outside of Christ, look at verse 20. You are free in regard to righteousness. What does that mean? You are free in regard to righteousness. Someone outside of Christ is free in regard to righteousness. This is not a good thing. This means you were not under the rule of, doing, of what's right, meaning you are not under Christ's rule. It's that, that sobering biblical fact Romans 8.8 8 tells us this. We'll get to that eventually. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God spiritually in the flesh. You can't please God. So what about that? Because to live a life pleasing to God is the believer's highest joy. Because God is so good. He's so loving. He gives us water. He gives us his water to drink. He, he keeps your lungs working. He lets you use his air. 
He lets you use his snow. He, he made you some hands to use. He gives you friendship and joy and taste buds and food. And even more, he, he sent his son to die on the cross. It's our highest joy to please him, but we're incapable of it before Christ. Third, in this biography of the unregenerate that then motivates the believer to holiness, the futility of life outside of Christ, the futility. Third here, under this first point still, the futility of life outside of Christ. I hope, I hope beloved, you just see how dark. You know, if you were saved later in life like I was, kind of in your mid-20s, I mean, you remember how dark it was. It doesn't matter how big the smile is of an unregenerate person, how loud the laugh is, how, how hard the high fives are. It is pure darkness. Verse 21, beginning of verse 21, the futility of life. Paul asks a question now. Therefore, he says, what benefit were you then having from the things of which you're now ashamed? That word translated benefit, it means fruit. The common metaphor in the New Testament that speaks of useful produce, things that honor God, things that show the beauty of God's holiness and his glory. So it's a rhetorical question. He says, tell me, what was the fruitfulness? What use was there of life outside of Jesus Christ? And he's not talking about, you know, an unbeliever who, you know, invents like a like the heart-lung machine or invents anesthesia. He's not saying that. Or an unbeliever who's like a farmer and makes up food. There is obvious use in that. Rather, he's saying, what use was life under slavery to sin? Talk to me about that. How productive was that when sin's enslavement showed itself and self-centered thoughts, self-centered motivation, speaking are foul ways of living. It's a rhetorical question. It means it, it was futile. It was useless. Totally useless. In Philippians 3.8, you don't have to turn there. Paul is thinking about this in his own life. He says, what use was the things that I did in life outside of Christ? And he uses the, he uses the Koine Greek word skubalon, which is, is, means refuse or sewage. And Paul was at the top of, of life, like in the first century subculture of Phariseeism. It was sewage. A person who is saved, they don't glory in their past sins. They, they think, what a waste. They grieve. They think, what a waste of my thoughts. They, they sorrow over how futile were those endeavors. How proud I was. How self-centered I was. I could have been using my thoughts and my time and my words, my resources for Christ. And I flushed it down the toilet, maybe literally, maybe proverbially. Like a professional athlete, right? They strategize all their time, all their effort, all of the thoughts, all their resources to improving their performance as an athlete. And when they deviate from that, if they get in a season of laziness or whatever it might be, and they snap out of it, they think, what a waste of time that was. I could have been improving and using, using this for profit. 
How much more in eternal things? Fourth characteristic. God-centered shame. And, and here Paul kind of changes gears a little bit. He's, he speaks in terms of being a believer and thinking like a believer as you look at, that, at the futility of life as an unbeliever. Look at verse 21. Again, the question, what benefit or fruit were you then deriving from the things, notice his wording, of which you are now ashamed? So he's kind of talking about an unbeliever and a believer in the same phrase. Our sin as an unbeliever was a waste, but the believer now is someone who is ashamed of their past life, and rightfully so. He says that they're ashamed of their sin. Which means, as, as Paul's helping us think through, like, again, that controversy, saving faith, false faith, it means a God-centered shame is an essential characteristic of a true believer. But what, do you, what does that mean? Aren't we to rejoice in Christ? We certainly are, and it's the shame that leads to that. There are two types of shame that a human being experiences. There's the self-centered, kind of self-consumed shame. Shame that you got caught. Shame that people don't have as high of opinion of you anymore. Shame that you're not as great as you thought you were. Right? Shame that kind of consumes in self. For the glory of self. It's self-centered. That's not what he's talking about here. The other kind of shame that a human being experiences is a great sadness. The Greek word there, shame, means a disgrace. That I dishonored God. It's, it's kind of odd sounding, but it is God glorifying. It's from God. It's sacred. It's holy. It's, there will be no shame in heaven. Think carefully about this. It's now. It's the holy response of the regenerate living heart to having violated God's word. The Old Testament teaches about this. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 21, you don't need to turn there, but Ezekiel 36, 21, God is looking forward and he's talking about, here's what saving faith is going to look like in the new covenant. It's a very, very interesting phrase, very interesting passage. I'll just read it. Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a living heart. In other words, this is talking about regeneration. I will put, he says, my holy, my spirit, my holy spirit within you. Again, that's regeneration. And cause you to walk in my statutes. Verse 31, Ezekiel 36, 31. You will remember your evil ways. And listen to this. Remember your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abomination. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God, let it be known to you, be ashamed and be confounded for your ways. What an interesting thing. So he says, you'll loathe yourselves, be ashamed. It's like a command. How does that work? Again, it's the consequence of regeneration, of having that new heart that's alive. It's like before and after of living in a house full of mold. Before, you know, no lights, you couldn't see it. After you get some lights, you start ripping up. Whoa, you see it, and there's this shock. The Holy Spirit enters the heart of a person 
the moment they are regenerate and turns the lights on, and instead of everything being everybody else's fault all the time, you see, whoa, I have sin too. Those who are not saved and not regenerate don't experience this shame. Jeremiah 8.12, God says, were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. They didn't know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time of their punishment, says the Lord. Now, the godly shame doesn't stay there. It moves to Christ. It moves to confession, to to true confession to God. It repents of sin, and it rests and rejoices on Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. It's shame over sin, but it's also rejoicing in Christ. Without this, a person is not a Christian, is not saved, is not regenerate, is not going to heaven. It is so important that we understand this clearly. Before salvation, we tend to do two things, have kind of this self-centered shame. We kind of deflect, blame shift stuff on people. We, we, we can't take the idea that we're a sinner and have this brought to us by the word of God. But once regeneration happens, we have that new heart and we are saved. The heart moves and we tend to do two things, have this God-centered shame and tend to blame our own sin, not on others, but on ourselves. This is what the Word of God says. So the issue of, a, of salvation is not merely then if a person says they believe in Jesus, they believe in eternal life. James 2.19 says, look, the demons believe that also. They believe, the demons believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins and rose from the grave. The demons believe that Jesus is God, but they don't have Regeneration. They have not experienced regeneration, the Holy Spirit, and they don't have a sense of this godly shame for their sin. That's the dividing line of a true believer and not. An interesting study is to look up every passage in the New Testament where someone is converted, is saved, is, becomes regenerate. And if you just take one book, like the book, the Gospel of Luke, and you look at every, every passage in there, where like God is saying, this person got saved, they just became regenerate. It is a fascinating study. Every single one, they have this godly shame over their own sin, where their sin is a bigger deal than others. Really quick, a few of those passages in Luke, 5, 1 to 11, 7, 36 to 50. 18, chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. Chapter 19, verse 1 to 10. And chapter 23, verse 40 to 43. Every single time. John Calvin, one of the greatest minds in the Christian faith, said this, quote, he said this of believers, they freely acknowledge that the whole part of their past life which they lived without Christ is worthy of condemnation. So far from trying to excuse it, they are in fact ashamed of themselves. Indeed, they go further and continually bear their disgrace in mind so that the shame of it may make them more truly and willingly humble before God. Let me read that again. So that the shame of it may make them truly humble before God. Godly shame. And then fifth of the carnage of life before salvation, the the end result of life outside of Christ. The end result of life outside of Christ. Look at verse 21. 
for the end of those things is death. The end result. It's always helpful to ask in any endeavor in life, where's this going? What's the end game here? You know, if you're a parent, it's a helpful thing to ask. Like this thing I'm doing with my kids, what's going to be the end game there? Or if you're involved in a project or a big investment, what's going to be the end result? Paul here loves us enough to say, look, I know the culture is filled with sin and there's lots of smiles and high fives, but let's think about what's the end game of that. He says, it's hell. The end game, the end of that road is hell. But he uses the word death. How's that hell? Everybody dies. The context here, he's contrasting the life of the believer and unbeliever. He can't be using physical death because the believer and the unbeliever both experience physical death. He's saying what Jesus didn't stutter about ever and talked a lot about, eternal death, eternal separation. Our friends that, you know, family that may seem like, oh, they're doing so much better outside of Christ, the end game of that is hell. Matthew 25, 41, Matthew 25, 46, Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. Well, in contrast to that, the carnage of life outside of Christ, there's the kindness of God in Christ. The kindness of God in Christ. The kindness of God in salvation. Verse 22. It's not all bad news. There's good news too. For those who would put faith in Christ. The kindness of God in salvation. Point number two. Which then is to motivate us to godliness. So verse 22 is like, again, it's like the biography of the person who has, been, who has become a believer since salvation. And it's the photo negative of verse 20 to 21. I mean, on every point, there's a photonegative parallel. And these traits, you know, th- these aren't multiple choice. This isn't, this isn't like, well, some believers can have like one or two of those, others more. No, it's all together because of union with Christ. You get them all. You don't get part of Christ. Number one, and there's four of these here. We'll have to go quickly. Number one, freedom from sin. Consequent of That childlike faith in Jesus, you get freedom from sin. And that's just fantastic news. You talk to a believer, and one of the things that most warms their heart is that they are free from sin now. Look at verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin, notice, past tense, having been. Passive voice, right? The action is upon them. They don't do the action. The action was performed on them. Having been freed, God did it. The Greek word means liberated, released from sin's mastery. God does the freeing. In ancient times, to be freed, for a slave to be freed, a price had to be paid so that that slave could change ownership. And often it was a big price, And let's never forget that price. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the curse that we failed God's law, commandments. How did he do that? Having become a curse for us, substitution. On the cross, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree or the cross. Christ redeemed us, that Greek word there, redeem. It was an ancient marketplace term that talked about paying a price for an item a sufficient price so that that item would come under new ownership. And that is what Jesus has done to free you from sin. 
It wasn't you that, and me that figured it out. We're not that good. Christ paid a large price. So what? So what? It tells us a believer can never be unbought from Christ or unredeemed. Christ isn't going to take back a believer. You know, when you, today there's all sorts of cool return policies. If you buy something, it breaks, it's defective. You go back there and, you know, customer's always right and give me a new one. And they do. It'll never be like that, though, with a believer. Well, but what if, I'm, what if I fail him? He only saves sinners, Luke 5.32. His blood covers it. John 6.39, all the Father has given me, I will not lose one. We're freed from sin, so why would we ever go back to it, beloved? Why would we ever revisit Sin. Our Lord paid such a high price. It's like a soldier in a war, and he's in a POW camp, a prisoner of war camp, and he's chained up like a dog, worse than a dog, beaten, starved, mocked. And then his allied forces come in and in this dangerous mission, cross enemy lines at great cost, and, 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 they, and they rescue him, and they bring him out and rescue him from the domain of that slavery and that misery. And then one day that POW says, um, I want to go back there and be chained up like a dog again and whipped. That's what it's like every time we go back to sin, beloved. Why would we do it? Why would we do it? Second trait here of the regenerate, we're enslaved to God. Enslaved to God. And this is a good thing. There's no better enslavement to have. Everyone's a slave of sin or God. Look at verse 22, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Remember who Christ is, is our master. Lest we think that this is a negative thing. A master who looked at our rebellious condition with compassion. A master who said, I will come down and all the, 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 the debt they built up, the penalty they built up, the sin they accumulated, I will have all of it unleashed on me. Put it on me. There is no master like that in history who says all of the flagrant sin they've committed and the eternal hell that the slave deserves, bring it to me, the master. That's what Jesus said and did. Stepped out of the most wonderful place to come to the worst place. Stepped out of pure worship to come to pure condemnation on the cross. He's a master who in your darkest times will carry you. And, and when you die one day physically, he's a master who will carry you and make sure you go to heaven. There's no better place to be in the universe than a slave of Christ. The alternative is unthinkable. He's the good shepherd. We're out of sin's jurisdiction. This doesn't mean we'll never sin again. That's heaven. But it does mean there's a huge break with sin's mastery. Think of it like a wrestling match. Imagine you're wrestling someone who's 10 times your size, 10 times your strength, 10 times your skill. Prior to life as a believer, that guy will pin you and you're not getting out. That's the slavery to sin. Now imagine as a believer, the roles are reversed. You're on top, you pin the guy. 
That's how it is being a slave to Christ now. Now, the guy under you will still put up a fight. He'll still be a nuisance. He'll still knock at you and squirm and hit at you, but he's not going to get on top of you and be your master ever again. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, sin in the Christian is no longer our master. It's just a nuisance. Third characteristic of the believer, sanctification. Sanctification. This is where this whole chapter is going. What does that word mean, sanctification? Look at verse 22. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit leading to sanctification. In life outside of Christ, it was futile. It was a waste. Now, sanctification. Sanctification is, is the true evidence that a person has experienced regeneration, salvation. It's a word every Christian must understand. The Greek word for sanctification, it means consecrated to God. It means set apart for God's uses and God's services and God's worship. It comes from uh, the ancient word for holiness or holy. And so theologically, sanctification means this. Consequent of regeneration, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit, progressively transforms you from the heart into the image of Christ. Consequent of regeneration, the Holy Spirit begins to progressively transform us from the heart, the inside out, into the image of Christ. Again, we can think of sanctification akin to physical growth in, in the human development process. Right? Becoming a Christian, regeneration is like the birth of a baby. It's just the beginning. Which is why in missions, you can't just preach the gospel and leave. They need a church. Like a baby needs to grow. But sanctification is the time from the birth of that baby to the time it's fully developed and grown, physically speaking. Sanctification begins for every single Christian without which the person is not a Christian the instant the Spirit of God brings the new birth and continues progressively. And just like in in the growth of a child or a human into full physical development, there's there's faster and slower times of growth. There's little plateaus here and there. But over the span, there is always growth. There is no such thing. Therefore, in this debate that we started talking about, as someone who is saved, a Christian, going to heaven, regenerate, a believer, whatever you want to call it, who is not being sanctified, who is not experiencing the sanctification, think about it, it's the power of God that hits your life. God's not going to give birth to a soul spiritually and then leave it. This is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Hebrews 12, 14 says it plainly. How important is sanctification? How certain is it? Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. If you can be saved and not sanctified and see the Lord and go to heaven, that's a funny way to say it. It says, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. Finally, the end result 
of life in Christ. Look at the end of verse 22. Leading to sanctification and the end, eternal life. The end game of life outside of Christ is eternal death, punishment, and separation. Hell. It would be unloving if we muted uh, that part of the Bible. But for those who just put faith in Christ, eternal life. Where you no longer have to fear death, you no longer have to fear what's after death, you no longer have to think of death as some inescapable, wretched terror. Revelation 21.4 says this, He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes in heaven. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or sorrow, no crying, no pain. The first things have passed away. God is so good. This is the end game. So what a contrast, beloved. Slave of sin or a slave of God? A life of futility, a life of sanctification. Eternal death, eternal life. Knowing the end result makes zero sense why a person would refuse to surrender their life to Jesus Christ. Why would anyone ever refuse that? The end of it is forever, it's inescapable, and it's terrible. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because, as we've been seeing over and over and over again, if you're with us earlier in the book of Romans, it is by faith that we're saved. If you're someone who maybe would say, Lord, Lord, but Jesus would say, I never knew you, This is a great day. God has brought you here to hear this message. God has brought you here to sit under the preaching of Romans 6 so that you can bow your knee to Jesus Christ by faith and get off this path of futility that ends in hell. It absolutely will. Jesus' arms are open wide. His nail-pierced hands. He says, you can't work your way to this. You can't earn this. Just receive me by faith. Father in heaven, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you that as we've seen from your word that grace will never leave a person unchanged when they receive it. Thank you for the gift of not only salvation, but sanctification. Thank you for the miracle of not only regeneration, but of transformation that you detain us from sin, those of us who put faith in Christ. And I pray for anyone and everyone listening, oh God, that we would put our trust in Christ. And if anyone who has perhaps seen that they've been the person in the end who will say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus said, I didn't know you, that they would call out to you, Lord Jesus, today, because all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's in his name we pray. Amen.